Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown. Across the table from me is Matthew Stockton. Say hello, Matthew. Hello, everybody. How are you today? I'm good. I hope everyone had a good Canada Day. And this is coming out actually on 4th of July for, for America. 4th of July. Celebrate your independence, America. So happy Canada Day and 4th of July to everyone. There you go. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. sunny Saturday afternoon on the 15th of August 1914 in a house near Spring Green, Wisconsin. One of the worst mass killings in the state's history occurred when seven people were axed to death, immolated, and the house they were in burnt down. It was a case that on its own would have made headlines, but it wasn't just any house that was burnt. Left in rubble was the world-famous architectural treasure named Taliesin, the house had been created by the internationally renowned architect Frank Lloyd Wright. The victims were Wright's partner, Martha Borthwick, her two children, 9-year-old Martha and 11-year-old John, gardener David Lindblom, draftsman Emil Brodell, builder Thomas Bruckner, and Bruckner's 13-year-old son, Ernest. You're listening to episode 226, Blueprint for Murder and the Architecture of Grief. If you're not interested in architecture, his name may draw a blank, but he's considered one of the most important and influential architects to have ever lived. And you probably do know his work, if you've ever seen S.C. Johnson's Administration Building in Racine, Wisconsin, the Marin County Civic Center in San Rafael, California, the Community Christian Church in Kansas City, Missouri, Price Tower in Oklahoma, Beth Shalom Synagogue in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania, or Kalita Humphreys Theater in Dallas, Texas. Then you've seen his work, as he designed all of them. You're most likely familiar with his famous round white Guggenheim Museum in New York. Have you ever been to the Goog? I haven't. I've never been to New York City. Oh, I'll take you sometime, baby. Yeah. Well, if you go, the thing to do, because it's actually a, a ramp that goes all the way down. Oh. So you, you take the elevator to the top and then walk down. It's much easier that way. Well, the building is shaped like that, so it would make sense architecturally that yeah. there's a ramp. And so, that's kind of cool. Yeah, the, the gallery is actually a ramp that goes around, gotcha. around the outside of the building. <laughs> the building that I'm most familiar with of Frank Lloyd Wright's is Falling Water. That's your favorite one, isn't it? It is, because uh, as many people don't know, I took architectural drafting and design in, uh, in college. So I have a diploma in that. The problem is I learned manual drafting, so with a pen. Yeah. The year that I graduated, AutoCAD 1.0 was released. <laughs> Do 
So I did learn AutoCAD, but I was more versed in actual. So I can draw you a house from beginning to end with a pen, but th that is not useful anymore. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Redundant the moment you graduated. That's exactly how my life has been. <laughs> If you're still at a loss, if you've ever watched Blade Runner, Gattaca, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, Westworld, Men in Black, or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, then you've seen his work, as they've all shot on location in a right building. That's really cool. Yeah, I love Buffy. Yeah, well, I have all of Buffy on iTunes, <laughs> so I, I still have to watch it all. I mean, I've watched it all when it happened, yeah. but I'd like to rewatch. For some reason, it's harder to get into, I guess because I know Joss Whedon isn't exactly the nicest guy. Right. Maybe watch it again, see if it uh, holds up. Yeah, right. we'll see. Still at a loss? Well, if you grew up in the suburbs in the USA or Canada, like Matthew and I, I don't know if I grew up in a suburb, but it was, well, a, it was small a small town. town. Yeah. Chances are you've lived in a house, while not designed by right, unless you're super wealthy or super lucky, it took a lot of influence from Wright. His prairie-style houses became the basis of the 20th century residential design in the United States and Canada. The typical suburban ranch-style home sprung partially from his prairie style. Of course, most are pared-down, less expensive versions. The height of his prairie-style houses was Taliesin, where this tragedy occurred. The grief felt by Wright after the tragedy literally changed the direction of his work and the face of American architecture. But let's back up a bit and talk about how Taliesin came into existence and why the victims were there on that fateful day. In 1903, Frank Lloyd Wright first met a woman named Martha, nicknamed Mama, Borthwick. That's kind of a fun. Mama! <laughs> At the same time, she used her married name, Cheney. Oh, I wonder if she's related to Dick. Anyway, <laughs> when she and her husband hired Wright to build them a house in Oak Park, Chicago, a beautiful, leafy suburb of the city. You know, one of my trips to Chicago, mm -hmm. I went specifically for, I was a total, so you study art, architecture. I think that's really cool because I was like a total geek when I was a kid yeah. for architecture. And I went to do an architecture tour of Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, and the city was, and you probably studied this a little bit, the city was really at the forefront of American architecture. Oh for yeah, years. it was, it the most modern buildings were being built there. One of the reasons is um, the Great Fire of Chicago in 1871. Mm -hmm. Like, it was a massive fire that destroyed about 3.3 square miles of the city. Yeah. And the fire happened just as elevator technology was getting much better. Mm -hmm. So when the city was rebuilt, they built these amazing modern skyscrapers. Oh, wow. So some of the, the early high-rises were in Chicago. And the fire wasn't really started by a cow. No, that was that was in London. Oh yeah, <laughs> but uh, Chicago is an interesting city. I again, I've just passed by it when I was driving across the country. Yeah. But my dad lived in Chicago. He did part of his veterinary oh, internship in Chicago, and he was there in Illinois when uh, Kennedy was shot. Wow. Mm -hmm. I wonder if he ever, if your dad ever visited Oak Park, um, because it is, it's just like beautiful suburb. Mm -hmm. You have to go through some sketchy parts of town to sure. get there. Yeah. But when you go and you see Wright's houses that he built in this neighborhood, yep. sitting beside the Victorian style ones that were built at the same time, yeah. you, you realize, wow, this guy was ahead of his time. That's cool. Yeah. Martha was a force of nature and an intellectual. She had a BA and an MA from the University of Michigan. Quite a feat for a woman back then when education was considered a more manly pursuit. Her smarts and natural curiosity meant she took an avid interest in the design process and building of her home, which was just a 15-minute walk from Wright's. Subsequently, they spent a lot of time together. Over that time, their two strong characters created a chemistry that neither could ignore. They started an affair, which created a huge tabloid scandal. Remember, this was the early 1900s, and a married man with children having an affair with a married woman with children was just not done. Both Wright and Martha were free thinkers and lived outside the norm at the time. Wright once said, quote, Law and rules are made for the average. It is infinitely more difficult to live without rules, but that is what the really honest, sincere thinking man is compelled to do. End quote. Martha, for her part, was equally considered a libertine. 
She was a proto-feminist and free love advocate. Well, with, wow. Yeah. That's very early on. Yeah, absolutely. So we're, you know, 60 years before the 60s. Yeah, this is, these are fascinating people. But the conservative society of the day made both pay dearly for their liberal views and for their affair. They were hounded relentlessly by the press and became the talk of not just the town, but the nation. Martha was shunned and Wright, despite his genius, found it suddenly impossible to land commissions. Both gave up their marriages, she her position in society, and he his career, for each other. That's nice. It's a love story. Yeah. Eventually, they couldn't take it anymore. They separated from their spouses in 1909, and they left the USA altogether, trading the spotlight's cold glare in Chicago for the warmth of the Tuscan sun in Florence, Italy, to regroup. Once settled in Italy, the rolling hills of Tuscany reminded Wright of the hills on his family's ancestral farm near Spring Green, Wisconsin. Both Frank and Martha were inspired by a house that was built into the side of the hill in Tuscany, seeming to almost grow from the hill organically with its use of local materials that matched the landscape. The inspiration was soon translated into a blueprint for their life together, as well as the blueprint for Taliesin which is a Welsh word meaning shining brow, as in brow of a hill, and gave a nod to Wright's Welsh heritage. They agreed to build the house, which would become their home far away from the haters in Chicago, and which would include a studio for Wright on a hill near Spring Green, Wisconsin. In 1910, he returned to the USA and put on a show of publicly reconciling with his wife to throw the tabloid press off the scent as he laid the foundation setting up home with Martha. In early 1911, he borrowed money from a friend under the auspices of building a home for his mother and had his mother sign the deed for land so as not to alert the press that he was planning to move out of Oak Park and in with Martha. Martha spent a few months with her children up here in Canada as she waited for her divorce to be finalized. I guess that's what makes it not an away game. Yeah. There's a Canadian connection. Yeah, there's a little bit right there. <laughs> in the summer of that year, with the divorce finalized, she quietly moved onto the Wisconsin property in the nearby house with Wright's sister as work on Taliesin started. By the winter of 1911, they moved into their yet unfurnished creation. This raised the ire of locals when the newspapers discovered and printed that they were, air quotes, living in sin. From the History.com article, The Massacre at Frank Lloyd Wright's Love Cottage by Christopher Klein, published in 2019, quote, The press branded it the Love Cottage and Castle of Love. Local residents were not welcoming of their new neighbors. The superintendent of Iowa County Schools told a reporter, quote, the scandal is bound to have demoralizing effect on the school children of the community. It is an outrage to allow young men and women and boys and girls to grow up in the belief that a man and woman can go disregard the marriage bonds, end quote. When sharp tongues, disapproving looks, and even threats of tarring and feathering failed to drive the couple from Spring Green, townspeople called upon the local sheriff to arrest right, end quote. It's insanity. This is nuts. I know. It got to the point that Sheriff Pengali of Iowa County had to make a statement in the Baraboo Weekly News on the 4th of January, 1912, titled, Snowbound, No Warrant, Story That Posse of Citizens Left for Right Cottage Denied. <laughs> he said, I will take no steps in the matter of Frank Lloyd Wright and his art mate. When the sensational affair was opened up in the newspapers, I had a consultation with District Attorney R.C. Smelker in regard to what I ought to do. We had no information other than that contained in the Metropolitan newspapers and that we considered not sufficiently reliable to warrant hasty action. Later, I made an investigation of the situation of the bungalow near Spring Green, where Wright and his lady companion are housed. The result is that I am not convinced the law is being violated. While I will promptly serve any paper placed in my hands, I will not assume the responsibility of placing under arrest a man and woman against whom I know nothing more than that the same roof sheltered them for a number of days. There's no law against that, as far as I know. End quote. Can you imagine yeah. a society where people are calling for you to be uh, arrested because you, you're divorced and living in sin with somebody else. Well, I can actually. 
I've read The Handmaid's Tale, yeah. and uh, there's... <laughs> Who knows if it's going to go back that way. Right? The way things are looking, it, it appears that kind of thinking is becoming prevalent again, which is very bizarre. <sighs> Despite this outrageous behavior by the locals... Frank and Martha's land gave them enough space to avoid the feeble-minded and live a bucolic life in some peace. I can picture Martha using the natural sunlight that would have been shining through the large windows of the house as she completed translating the works of Swedish difference feminist thinker Ellen Kay, whom they both admired, while Frank worked in a studio, both surrounded by their Japanese art collection that was another shared passion. That sounds like a really nice life, I think. I, I know. <laughs> I'm like, I could do that. Yeah, I could do that, too. Frank finally got some work when Edward C. Waller Jr. commissioned him to create a beer hall. <laughs> a Frank Lloyd Wright beer hall. But work was work, and Wright was all in with gusto. His genius turned a simple beer hall into Chicago's Midway Gardens, a luxurious building that would be the last of the prairie-style era surrounded by palatial gardens. It was at Midway Gardens that a 31-year-old man named Julian Carlton was recommended to write by John Vogelsong Jr., the caterer for the Midway Gardens project. Carlton and his wife Gertrude had served in the house of Vogelsong's parents in Chicago. In June of 1914, the Carltons arrived at Taliesin, happy to have the new gig and, by all accounts, an affable presence at the estate. They both cooked, and Julian was sort of the butler of the house while also doing other odd jobs. However, in a few short months, Julian's relationship with Martha and Frank, as well as several of the other workers, deteriorated. It was said that Julian Carlton was hot-tempered. It was also reported that a minor physical altercation broke out between him and draftsman Emile Brodel, who had called him a racial slur over an argument about saddling a horse. So... Is Carlton a person of color? Yes, he is. Okay. So he's, is he a black man? Yes. Okay. Gertrude later said that Julian became paranoid and erratic over the last few weeks of their stay at the estate, claiming at night that he would sit looking out the window holding a butcher knife and slept with a hatchet beside the bed. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not going to go anywhere good, is it? No, that sounds like... Uh, why we're doing this podcast. Yeah, some sources say that uh, Julian and Gertrude had um, put in their notice mm -hmm. and that they'd be leaving on the 15th of August. Sure. But other sources, when I was doing this research, research said that um, he was actually fired due to his erratic behavior and told the 15th would be his last day. But it's, um, you know, the... The truth is is lost in, in history. You know, different Different sources say different things. Yeah. Whatever the case, the summer morning of the 15th of August dawned, and it was going to be a hot one in more ways than one. It was such an infamous day that many different variations of the exact details have been told over the years since, but this seems to be the main thrust of what happened. So Frank was away in Chicago, putting the finishing touches on Midway Gardens. He was there with his son John, pulling all-nighters to get the place ready in time for the official launch. Wright was not afraid of hard work and was fully dedicated to his buildings. Martha's two children, little Martha, nine years old, and 11-year-old John, were visiting for the summer. She, having lost full custody of her children in the divorce from Edwin Cheney. At lunchtime, the mother and her two children took their seats on the veranda to be served their lunch. The six-person work crew, which consisted of foreman Thomas Bruckner, gardener David Limblom, Carpenter William Weston, his 13-year-old son Ernest Weston, who had come to Taliesin that day to help his dad. Also present were draftsmen Herbert Fritz and Emil Brodel, who also took their seats in the dining room in another part of the house. When Gertrude finished cooking, Julian told her to leave the house immediately and head towards the train station. She put on her travel clothes and best hat and left expecting him to join her after lunch was served. Julian first served lunch to Martha and her children on the veranda. Just after he finished giving them the food, they began to tuck in. He pulled out a hatchet that he had hidden and swung it with great force, hitting Martha in the head, killing her instantly. He then turned to young John and did the same, killing him as he sat in his chair. Poor little Martha, who had just witnessed her mother and brother butchered, fled, 
as quickly as her little legs would take her, but Julian hunted her down, easily caught up with her in the courtyard, and proceeded to land two blows of the hatchet into her head as she crumpled to the ground. Julian then proceeded to pour gasoline on the bodies and set them alight. With Wright's partner and her children finished, Julian then hurried to the kitchen, grabbed the food for the work team, and served them in the dining room. The dining room was in another part of the house and far away from the massacre of the family that they had no idea what had just happened. Once Julian had given them the food, he left the dining room and barred the door from the outside. As they began to eat, 19-year-old draftsman Herbert Fritz and the others noticed something odd. He later said, quote, Something flowing under the screen door from the court. We thought it was nothing but soap suds spilled outside. The liquid ran under my chair and I noticed the odor of gasoline, end quote. This is horrendous. I know. By the time he realized what it was, it was too late. Fritz recalled, quote, a streak of flame shot under my chair. Outside the door, having emptied the gas canister, Julian had thrown a match onto the liquid, which immediately burst into flames and spread across the floor. In seconds, the room and all its occupants were on fire. Those trapped inside the inferno made a rush for the door, only to find it locked. Remember, they were all on fire at this point. They started to kick the door down in panic. Fritz, with his clothes burning and hair on fire, jumped through the first story window, breaking his arm as he landed on the brow of a hill. No longer a beautiful shining brow, but one engulfed in flame and smoke soaked in blood. He rolled down the hill to the pond at the foot of it to put out the flames. When he looked back, Fritz saw the entire house was engulfed, and Julian attacking his friends and colleagues with the axe. They had managed to kick down the dining room door, but Julian had been waiting for them, and he wanted no survivors. Every single person at the estate had been set on fire or wounded by the axe, but although terribly burned and wounded, carpenter William Weston and gardener David Lindblom managed to escape with Fritz. They stumbled the half-mile to the nearest house with a phone to call for help. Young 13-year-old Ernest Weston was thought already dead, but actually died while help was on its way. David Lindblom would die a few days later from his burns. We'll take a break right here and hear from our sponsors, but first, here's a promo for a show that we think you'd like, and it's hosted by our friend Eric, who we met at CrimeCon this year. Have a listen. Hi friend, my name is Eric carter Dean, and I am the host and producer of True Consequences Podcast. This is not your typical true crime podcast. You see, my brother was murdered over three decades ago in New Mexico, and I have been fighting for justice for him ever since. I created this show to advocate for my brother's case and for others in my community who are seeking justice. I cover cases with an empathetic lens because I know what it's like to seek justice for a family member. True Consequences covers cases from New Mexico and the American Desert Southwest. Give my show a shot. You can listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts, or you can go to trueconsequences.com. Thanks for listening and stay safe. And we're back. So, Matthew, you wrote this episode. Yes. And uh, when I first read it, I was thinking, oh, great. You know, like murders that happened around Frank Lloyd Wright. You know, what did he, did somebody stab them with like a Koh-i-Noor diamond tip pen or yeah. something like that? But yeah. these are horrible. This is, this is a shocking story, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was a Frank Lloyd Wright geek and mm -hmm. I've studied his buildings and I've seen yeah. hundreds of photos of this place. So... While I was writing this, it's, you know, I had almost a cinematic view in my head because I can place where everyone was, right? I, yeah. I know, I know the rooms, so it, it was actually quite difficult to write. It sounds like it's much bigger um, than one would think, like... And, and Frank Lloyd Wright wasn't, wasn't somebody who designed a little tiny shack. No, some people call it a bungalow. It ain't no bungalow. Right. right? It, yeah. it's, it's quite large. Meanwhile, Frank receives a telegram at Midway Gardens in Chicago that contained only four terrible words, Taliesin destroyed by fire. He was spared the horrible details that the love of his life, her children, and his friends, people he had selected for the talents to help build his masterpiece, were dead, 
and had been killed at the hands of someone he had brought into the fold. He rushed with his son John, who was helping him at Midway, to the train station in Chicago. Martha's ex-husband Cheney had also received a telegram with the same message, as did the press. In an awkward moment, the two men, who had not seen each other since the affair blew up, shook hands and jumped into the same carriage to escape the questions of reporters. Can you imagine? <laughs> they haven't met, but now they're like rushing in a train to see what happened. Yeah. And all these reporters are, are there. They, they, they meet, they shake hands, they jump in. But remember, this is, this is 1914, right? So news was not that instantaneous. And it's not a bullet train either. No, it, news wasn't instantaneous, especially coming from a small village in mm -hmm. rural, rural, say that 10 times fast, rural Wisconsin. Um, trains were really much slower, you know, they come kind of lumbered along. So that, that trip is going to be excruciating. Yeah. Right. Well, cause they don't know if anybody's dead. All they have is Talies and destroyed by fire. Yeah, and the, the trips can take them hours. Hours. Yeah. There were several stops along the way. At each stop, the two men would get out of the train while it was on the platform and hear bits and pieces of what had happened. The shocking truth unfolded, one agonizingly sad chapter at a time, station by station. By the time the train got to Madison, Wisconsin, the second to last stop, Wright must have heard the final chapter, as he would not leave the carriage, despite family being there to meet him. By this point, he must have known enough of the horror that awaited him. He waited in silence as the train lumbered along to the final destination, Spring Green. While Wright and Cheney were in the purgatory of the train journey, the hell at Taliesin continued. After making the telephone call for help, Lynn Blom and Weston bravely returned to the estate, which was at this point a raging inferno. Carlton was nowhere to be found. Weston, remember he was badly burned and bleeding and his son was dead, heroically fought the fire. Wright's studio was a separate building from the house, he knew the main house was a loss and focused on the studio. He managed to douse the flames, thus saving the building and many of Wright's important manuscripts and blueprints. By this time, many locals had arrived at the estate, starting a bucket brigade to try to put the fire out, and collected the bodies, burned beyond recognition, to lay them out under sheets. John Williams, the county sheriff, arrived and deputized a group of volunteers to search for Julian Carlton. They found Gertrude walking through a field nearby and arrested her, but they couldn't find Julian. Eventually, one of the volunteers found him hiding in the furnace in the basement of the house, clutching his axe. It's assumed he hid down there in an asbestos-lined furnace to be protected from the fire, with a plan to slip out unseen after everyone left. The volunteer ran to get the police, but before the sheriff got to him, Carlton pulled from his pocket a bottle of muriatic acid, which is a diluted form of hydrochloric acid. He drank it in an attempt to kill himself. It seems he had created an entire blueprint for the murder in his head, one that included an emergency exit in the form of suicide if he were caught, but he didn't take enough of it for instant death. While the sheriff was in the basement coaxing Carlton out of the furnace, news on the estate got around that he had been found and what can only be described as an angry lynch mob formed around the house. I kind of saw this coming. Yep. As they exited the smoldering remains of the house, Carlton whispered to the sheriff in a croaky voice, his larynx destroyed by acid, quote, They better let me live if they expect to find out something. End quote. Yeah, it was at this point that the, the sheriff actually had to uh, unholster his gun and point it at the mob. Yeah. So he could force his way to the police car with Carlton. Wow. Because they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him right then and there. And, yeah. and after he got into the car, the sheriff drove with a bunch of cars with like armed men chasing them. But they managed to get to the, the jailhouse and get him, get him in there safely. That's bonkers. Yeah. Gertrude was also taken in for questioning, but told the police that she had no idea that her husband was planning to do what he did. She thought they were going back to Chicago to find new jobs. The police believed her and put her on a train with $7 in her pocket. She was never heard from again. When Wright and Cheney arrived in Spring Green, they went to visit the bodies or what remained of them which had been taken to the home of Wright's sister and brother-in-law. You don't need to maybe name the house. The next day, Cheney left with what remained of his two children in one relatively small box, 
they'd been burned so badly that not much was left. He didn't stay for the funeral of his ex-wife, which would occur a few days later. He eventually had the children's remains interred in the family mausoleum in Chicago. Family members of the other victims came to claim their loved ones' bodies. Wright spent much of the day of Martha's burial cutting every single one of the thousands of flowers that were growing in the gardens of the estate until none were left. Then he placed Martha's body into a simple pine casket and filled it with the flowers. The casket was then placed on a horse-drawn carriage in which he piled the remainder of the flowers, and it was taken to the family chapel nearby. Isn't that sad? All of like, like all of those thousands of flowers. And it's he, terrible. The funeral wasn't really a funeral. Mm. It was um, Frank, his son John, and two nephews were the only people there. Yeah, there was no word spoken, no sermon was given. But after Martha's casket was lowered into the unmarked grave, and mm. the others left, get this: Wright spent the entire night alone, filling the hole in the ground with his bare hands. With his bare hands, he, li- he, he literally with his bare hands all night long. He filled that hole. He was known to be a passionate guy, so it's not that actually doesn't surprise yeah, me. Yeah, but um, this this broke him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Carlton was arraigned on the 16th of August and entered a plea of not guilty. However, the acid he had swallowed had done severe damage to his esophagus and stomach, making it impossible to ingest food. Despite medical attention, he died from starvation in his cell 45 days later, before the case could be heard. This lack of closure got tongues wagging. Some were suggesting that Wright had arranged to have his partner killed by Carlton, while many others implied that it was divine retribution and deserved punishment for living the lifestyle that he had. The unrelenting press during Martha's life kicked into even higher gear after her death. One example of this is the September 5, 1914 full-front-page article of the Ogden Standard. It reads, quote, it was easy enough five years ago for Wright to talk of idealism, but today, with the new-made grave up in the Wisconsin wood, it is a different tale. Not only does that one grave refute his arguments, but two urns of his soulmate's children in a Chicago crematorium and the other dead deny his declarations. The old law, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, was so much trash to write. They refused to be bound by any provisions of others and therefore established a kingdom of their own in the land of their own, where they built their love bungalow and surrounded it with a lovely flower garden. But up in the Wisconsin woods, the people are stern in their beliefs and point to the tragic ruin of the kingdom of love as the strongest argument that the avenging angel, capital A and capital A, still flies and that the one who wrecked the home was only another Darius the Mede destroying another feast of Belshazzar to inflict the wrath of the gods, end quote. The article goes on to directly imply that Martha was high on her glory, deserved to have been murdered by, and I'll paraphrase here in this to soften the language, to get the tone across, a lowly black cook. That's disturbing that the front page would just say they deserved it. Yeah. Essentially, what they've done is victim blaming. Yeah. So you had victim blaming, racism, everything on that, that front page. Sh- shitty puritanical. Yeah. Society was filled with racism and puritanism and vitriol back then. Mm-hmm. And this victim blaming, you know, this is victim blaming at its height, right? Yeah. Seven, seven people were dead. There was a woman of great intellect gone, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, all these people were gone and they had this building that was beautiful was burnt down yeah and they're saying you deserved it right Be- yeah. just because they loved each other so what do you think was the real motive then you know i it, it's hard because um you know i i think that uh there was that r- racist slur that sure. was used he, re- he probably resented the so there was resentment there but mm-hmm. you know looking at this um, like he had it planned out, but he was getting more and more paranoid. I think there was some mental, I think it was mostly mental health issues. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So typically, you know, in a case like this where it comes out the way it did, yeah, I would think that there was some sort of psychosis there. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, obviously I'm not a doctor and I didn't. And it's way back, him. it's a bit way back when. Yeah. yeah. It was like my grandmother was three. Yeah. It, <laughs> 
Wright later described in his autobiography that it was a devastating scene of horror from which he never fully recovered. He explained why he didn't mark Martha's grave. Quote, All I had left to show for the struggle for freedom of the five years past that had swept most of my former life away had now been swept away. Why mark the spot where desolation ended and began? Yeah, fair enough. Years later, he did add a simple tombstone. I actually have... um. A first edition signed copy of his autobiography. Oh, that's really cool. I would like to read it. Indeed, Wright struggled mightily with the loss. He experienced what we now know to be conversion disorder. Uh, from Wikipedia, conversion disorder is defined as, quote, a diagnostic category used in some psychiatric classification systems. It is sometimes applied to patients who present with neurological symptoms such as numbness, blindness, paralysis, or fits which are not consistent with a well-established organic cause, which cause significant distress and can be traced back to a psychological trigger. It is thought that these symptoms arise in response to stressful situations affecting a patient's mental health or an ongoing mental health condition such as depression, end quote. It sounds like aspects of post-traumatic stress. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. Wright suffered from chronic insomnia, extreme weight loss, and actually went temporarily blind. His sister, Jane Porter, looked after Frank Lloyd Wright in her home and nursed him back to health. Wright eventually rebuilt Taliesin not once but twice as it again burnt down due to faulty wiring in the 1920s. Can you believe that? I can't. Like, that is... That's bad luck. This poor guy. Yeah. He kept it as his summer home until he died in 1959. He just couldn't let it go. However, he never built another prairie-style home again after the loss of Martha. The building still stands today. The 37,000-square-foot home and 300-acre estate is a designated National Historic Landmark and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Yeah, so there you go, 37,000 square feet. That ain't no bungalow. No, it's no bungalow. <laughs> I, the home that I designed for my final project yep. as a draftsman was a Georgian style home that was 11,000 square feet. And I thought that was big. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Frank Lloyd Wright was notorious for his gigantic uh, homes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The story doesn't end here. The tragedy created a tectonic shift in his architectural style. He did a complete 180. After burying Martha literally with his own hands, he buried himself in his work. About half a year after Martha was in the ground, he went to the Panama, California Exposition in San Diego and was inspired by the pre-Columbian architecture he viewed there. He began building heavy, tomb-like structures, often called Mayan Revival rites. They are quite foreboding, and you can easily imagine them as tombs holding the dead. A good example of this work in popular culture is the dystopian home of Harrison Ford's character in Blade Runner. This style is directly linked from the axe murder of the love of Wright's life. Christopher Hawthorne of the LA Times wrote, quote, They were places for Wright to bury the grief he'd been shouldering for nearly a decade. Since Mama Borthwick, the woman he'd abandoned his family and career for, was brutally murdered in 1914. They were an attempt to put a definite end to, to buy for good, a deeply troubled decade in his personal and professional lives. These minor revivals are actually my favorite of his buildings. Mike. Really? Uh, they're, they're beautiful because they're almost, they're almost brutalist, mm -hmm. right? But the blocks that he uses, every, the, everything's textured. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I love them. I'd love to own a, a, a Mayan uh, revival by right. Well, yeah. I'd I'd love to, I'd love to ha live in a bunch of different houses. Like that's the pro. This is the problem. I don't have the money to live in, in all in all of these great places. Yeah, it's like I like mid century modern, but I also like uh, second era French. You know that uh, yeah. those those kind of really ornate haunted house looking places. Yeah. It's like you can't have everything. Yeah, you can't. You can just appreciate things, I guess. Yeah. Even these buildings became the sets for other tragic tales. Frank's son, Lloyd, became an architect. Having studied under his father, he continued the Mayan revival style. One of his most famous creations is the enigmatic Soden House, nicknamed the Jaws House. For true crime fans, Soden House might ring a bell. From the article by Hadley Mears, titled, 
The sordidly and possibly murderous secrets of the Soudan House, a short history of the Lloyd Wright-designed fortress, on the curbed Los Angeles website. Quote, After George, Soudan, the owner, died, his son Steve, a retired LAPD detective, was going through some of his father's possessions when he found two pictures of a lovely dark-haired girl. He soon became convinced that the photos were of Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia, whose unsolved 1947 murder and mutilation had long been the stuff of Hollywood legend. Memories of whispers and drunken accusations linking his father to many evil deeds flooded back to Steve. Many family members and old friends then filled in the gaps, suggesting his father may have participated both in the murder of Short and that of an unidentified secretary. Over the next few years, he became convinced that not only had his sadistic father murdered the Dahlia, he had also been responsible for a number of unsolved brutal murders that had taken place in Los Angeles in the 1940s. And he believed that some of these murders had taken place in the Soden House's basement. In 2003, Steve made these allegations public in the book Black Dahlia Avenger. After the Avenger was published, LA Times reporter Steve Lopez went through long-forgotten police transcripts related to the Dahlia's murder. Not only did he find proof that that Hodel was a suspect in the murder, he also discovered that the Soudan House had been bugged by the DA's office at one point. A transcript appeared to record a woman being assaulted in the basement, followed by the sounds of digging. Later that night, the DA's microphone recorded George on the phone with a German friend. Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, the good doctor said. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. No concrete proof of the secretary's existence has ever been found. In 2013, Steve Hodel claimed that a cadaver dog had indicated that human remains had been or were present in the basement and behind the house. End quote. So isn't that interesting? So, mm -hmm. so the house, and actually I think there's a movie where this house actually, they shot part of it Appears, about, yeah. about the Black Dahlia. Yeah. So you had, you know, this murder at Taliesin, mm -hmm. right? Then his house burns down again. Then his son builds a, a mine revival, and they think that murders occurred there. Yeah. There, there's a lot going on with these buildings. In 1958, another sensational case came out of the Imperial Hotel in Japan, a building built by Frank Lloyd Wright, which was a bit of a cultural mashup of the Mayan style and Imperial Japanese style. In this case, an oil magnate named T.A.D. Jones Jr., who is named after his father, Thomas Albert Dwight Jones, an All-American quarterback and coach of the Yale football team, was found dead in a suite with bruises all over his body, a cut lip, and swollen eyes. His brother-in-law, Joseph P. Crowley, who was also staying at the hotel with him, had a bruised hand a twisted ankle, and had argued against an autopsy and tried to insist that the coroner say Tad died of a heart attack, <laughs> despite the blood everywhere. The wealthy Crowley had a league of defense lawyers that achieved a not guilty verdict, but not many believed it, and the case followed him for years. And, and of course he killed him. Yeah, of course. But it's, like I just, when I was doing this research, I just started uncovering all these stories of of sad events that, around that, that, Frank Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright, mm -hmm. and and the, and the houses, but um, and you have written here, and that's it for today's episode. And that I should say, yeah. I'm thinking <laughs> we should do a live show in one of Wright's buildings. What do you think, Matt? <laughs> I want to travel to a Frank Lloyd Wright house and do a show. I would love to see actually in person Frank Lloyd Wright's. Uh, architecture. Uh, obviously, I will see the Guggenheim at one point, yeah. but I'd like to see some of the the homes that yes. he built as yeah. well. I've I've looked at them in books; they're fantastic, but you never really get the feel for uh, a a really great architectural marvel until you're standing it, in until it. you're in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or e even like looking at it from the outside and able to see. How it fits into the landscape. I'm yeah. such an architecture nerd. Yeah, you are. So am I. <laughs> oh, well. But that was fun. That was a fun episode. I mean, fun, but yeah, well, horrible. Really horrible. I know. Yeah, I, I was looking forward to doing this one. Uh, I'd been putting it off and putting it off because I didn't, I just wanted to make sure that it was, I felt right about it. Because yeah. 
yeah, especially kids. Well, I always struggle with that. I know we don't typically cover children, but, but this was the the reason why I put it in is it's like 1904, so it's a long time ago. Exactly, everyone's long dead, right? Yeah, there's no relatives mourning these children anymore. So. Unless they're 120 years old. Yes. <laughs> and, if, and even those would have been children at the time. True. And yeah. they wouldn't be listening to us. No. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one 877 darkptn We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All right, let's take a listen to our first voicemail. Hey guys, I am just calling. I'm actually doing some house renovations, listening to your um, Gail Miller and Nilgard episode. Um, and I know you had asked for any staff that work in an institution to give a call about the race culture. Um, so I work at a jail in Ontario as a social worker. Um, and so I can say in my experience, I've never had someone say that they have been raped to me or, you know, had um, an incident where it was reported. Now, is that because it's not happening or is it just they're too afraid to come forward? I don't know. Um, so that's my experience with it. But what I will say is, at least in Ontario, we do take a lot of preventative measures when people have um, charges and rape and, you know, anything to do with children or something that other prisoners might not be too happy about. Um, so we tend to house um, those individuals with people with similar charges. Um, and then if there are still issues, we have a separate uh, place that we put them um, to really keep a closer eye on them, make sure they're safe. Um, and so we do take a lot of steps to try and prevent that, you know, rape culture or just, you know, getting physically, just, but getting physically assaulted. Um, you know, there definitely are a lot of physical assaults that happen in the institution, um, but not just because of someone's charges. Um, sometimes, you know, guys just want to assert their dominance, be the tough guy on the range. Um, and so we see a lot of that, but it's not necessarily just because of their charges. Um, I'm kind of rambling here, so I hope that makes sense. But yeah, happy to share any other insight into uh, provincial institutions going forward. Thank you, and uh, go shit in your hat. Well, thank you very much. It's the first time a social worker has told me to go shit in my hat. <laughs> but, uh, or maybe it isn't. I don't know. No, you weren't rambling at all, actually. That no, was, that totally was really not. And I, I love when we ask these questions and get people to call in because mm -hmm. I don't know. And, no, and to yeah, hear somebody too. that works and, you know, this is her experience, maybe different provinces or states have different experiences, but it, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear this. So the way the protective measures that they take are, are things that I had read about in other places. And, uh, I assumed that's how Canada dealt with yeah. things, but, uh, but it's good to know that that is what goes on. It's interesting, uh, that she's never had anybody report that to her. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it is, you know, that there's that other culture within that system where you don't tattle. You keep stumped. Yeah, exactly. So let's listen to another voicemail. Here it is. Hello, guys. It's um, calling from good old Keystable Island, Nova Scotia. I just wanted to say I've been binging your shows the last, I'd say, about two months. I really enjoy listening to your podcast on the way to work and on the way home. I've learned a lot about the dark side of Canadian history. Um, and I just got thinking, my mom always said growing up that she went to school with a serial killer, and I never believed her because she went to school in Argyle, Nova Scotia. And anyways, I had to do some research, and I guess she was right. I'm just wondering if you guys have ever done a show on Michael McGray. Um he, he was born in Ontario, but he was raised in Nova Scotia here anyways, and he's pretty infamous. I know at one point in time they thought that he had killed a, a local girl here in the early 90s, but they confirmed that it wasn't the case. But anyways, I just, just got thinking about that. I said, hmm, that would make an interesting show. Uh, 
I got my lobster poutine here I'm eating, and I'm going to enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy yours. Happy Canada Day, and go take a shit in your head. Well, there you go. I think she said she was calling from Cape Sable Island. Did she say that? Oh, I all I heard was lobster poutine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that sounds good. I love it when people from back home call. I love the Nova Scotian accent uh, that, you know, it just it reminds you of home. It just drags me right back home. That's lovely. We did do uh, Michael Wayne McRae in episode 61 of Dark Poutine because I was well aware of that guy uh, as... I recall some of the uh, investigations around some of the murders that he was eventually uh, accused of. So if you want to listen to that episode, go back to, ni- er, go, ni- <laughs> to 1961. Go back to 1960. No, episode 61 and have a listen. Yeah. But uh, thank you for calling. Thank you. Muchos gracias. Or as we say in Nova Scotia, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's listen to our last voicemail for this one. <laughs> oh, I'm still laughing, Mike. Uh, that was good. Um, anyway, I called you probably, I don't know, what was it, babe? Like a year and a half ago, year ago, a few months ago, whatever. Um, you didn't play it because I actually asked you not to play it, so I appreciate that. Uh, my name is Jeff, Nova Scotia. My name is Jeff. Um, I had a very interesting, um, I guess, experience or knowledge of a particular incident that happened around here that I was, you know, somewhat close to or tied to based on uh, working relationships. So, anywho. Very vague. You and Matt are awesome. We listen to you all the time. You can certainly play this, but I would definitely be cool and interested in you calling me back to talk about the incident I was telling you about uh, in that previous uh, message. So, you know my number. Yeah, so I'll cut that there because I don't want to every listener to have this guy's number. And it was interesting. He was being vague about some stuff. I have a funny feeling I might know what he's talking about, but I'm going to give him a call. I will give you a call and we will have a conversation. At the beginning there, I thought he called you, babe, but then I realized <laughs> his his partner's probably in the room with him. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, he, he should have called you, babe, Mike. I, I never get a babe. Hey, babe. How you doing there, babe? <laughs> Thank you for your call. Yep. Much appreciated. All right. I guess that means it is time for Patreon and Donut Money donor shout-outs. Nice. It is nice. I thought you were going to say Donut Money donorships. Donorships. <laughs> <laughs> You're a donut, donut, you, you have an official Donut Money donorship. Exactly. So first up is Deb Thornley. And Deb is from Denmark, but not in Europe. Okay. In Australia. Denmark, Denmark, Australia. Wow. She's a nice lady from Denmark, Australia. Wow. Mm-hmm. And uh, what does Deb Thornley do there in Denmark, Australia? She's a dinosaur herder. There's dinosaurs? Well, I, you know, Australia does have a lot of different wildlife there that we're not familiar with here in North America. So they, they do. I actually, I, I recently saw the new Jurassic Park. Okay. And there were dinosaurs in Australia? There are dinosaurs. I'm not okay. Uh, He's not going to spoil it. Oh, not not a spoiler. But there's dinosaurs everywhere. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow, that's great. I want some dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, so, so thank you, Deb. And uh, I guess it is winter time in Australia now. Isn't it, it is indeed. Yeah. Wow. I, I always find it funny that Christmas Day in Australia looks really hot. Oh, I spent a Christmas day in Australia once. Oh, did you? On the, yeah, in an outdoor cafe and the poor Santa Claus, he dressed up for the kids. Oh, wow. I thought he was going to have a heat stroke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Santa and heat stroke. Yeah. <laughs> they aren't two things that uh, you would think would go nope. together, but uh, yeah. Uh, next up, we have from Saanichton, BC, there on the island, Val Jankunas, Val Jankunas, 
from Saanichton. That is really close to Victoria, if I remember Hello, correctly. Val. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, what does Val do there in Saanich? She makes sandwich- sandwiches in Saanichton. <laughs> okay. What's, what's her uh, sort of, the Saanich sandwich? Yeah. Is, yeah. yeah. That's that's the famous one. Exactly. It it's has, like the Nanaimo bar. It has like Montreal smoked meat in it. Oh, yummy. I know. I love Montreal smoked meat. Did you hear what happened in Saanich last week? Oh, is this town? Oh, Saanich. Yeah, yeah. Is San- that how you say it? Saanichton. Oh. But I, I guess they're they're close to each other. Yeah. The, but the twin brothers. These twin brothers, um, Matthew and Isaac. Wasn't me. Auctorloni. Auctorloni. Um, they... Were twenty-two-year-old young men who twin, went into twin, a twin brothers. Twin brothers went into a bank with guns, and essentially there was a shootout with police. Six police officers were shot or injured, mm. and these two are dead. And they still don't know why. One of our um, younger yarders, um, one of the police, is her uh, father-in-law. Oh wow! One of the cops who was injured. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it it's all horrible because from what I've read, they these these guys didn't have any history Mm-mm. or anything. So it, it's it's a very, very strange story and, and we, we hope that the police officers that got shot are, are recovering. I did creep their Facebook yeah. pages a little bit. Oh I always do that. And I noticed that they had like World War Two cover photos and there were some photos of them in army type gear and okay. all that kind of stuff. So they were into that stuff. Okay. But it's interesting. They were from the island, like, uh, the two I wrote about in my book who ended up murdering people in Northern British Columbia. Yeah. What is that about? And it's, it had, it smacks of the same kind of attitude and yeah, yeah it's very, very weird. Well, well it, future episode perhaps a future episode for sure and thank you again val thanks val next up we have michelle dory forstel and she's from napanee ontario napanee napanee yeah so what does michelle do in napanee i think there's are there wineries around napanee oh it sounds like Maybe you're thinking Napa Valley. And She's from the Napanee Valley, and she makes Nap- Napanee Valley wines. <laughs> She's a vineyard there called the Broken Goose. The Broken Goose? Yep. Oh, my. <laughs> my goose is broken. What thank happened you. to your goose? It broke. Thank you. Uh, next up, thank you so much, Michelle. <laughs> next up, we have Kelsey Elizabeth, and it looks like Kelsey has opted out of benefits. So that's really nice. So she didn't tell us where she's from. I know where she's from. Where is she from? Waikikamu Cow. What? Waikikamu Cow. Okay. New Zealand. Oh, I thought you were going to say Hawaii. No. Waikiki. Waikikamu Cow. Waikikamu Cow. Why why would you kick a moo cow? I don't know. Why would you kick a... I would never kick a moo cow. Did I ever tell you the story about my friend Dominic? No, oh, you guys didn't go cow tipping, did you? No, we, we oh. used to like explore. Okay. So we were just exploring. So me, Dominic, and I, I think. get into trouble. I think another friend named Barry were all getting into trouble. We were like 13. Okay. So there's not a lot of trouble that we were getting into by that point. But uh, we're exploring around the yacht club where my parents uh, had their boat. Yep. It's not as fancy as it sounds. Gonna, oh, <laughs> no, it's, it's not nearly as fancy as it sounds. But um, right across from it, it was a, a farm with dairy cattle. And so we went and explored in sort of the lower around this brook. And there were the dairy cattle came over curious to see us. And Dominic was terrified. <laughs> By the cows. Was he? He was so afraid of the cows. So he obviously didn't grow up in farm. No, he ran. <gasps> they chased him. They chased him of because. Of course, if you run, they chase you. They, they chase you. And yeah. he ended up in the brook, like splashed. Oh. <laughs> With the really dangerous cows coming after him. They were mooing at him gently. <laughs> I have to say my grandfather's herd just did. Um, I can remember being up a tree and my grandfather having to come to get me. But I was like five or something. Yeah, like. exactly. That's funny. So Kels, Kelsey lives in Waikikamu Cow. Waikikamu Cow. Okay. And, and that's in New Zealand. And what, 
I hope she doesn't kick moo cows. No, and... she's a dairy farmer. She well, loves, there you go. She loves the moo cows. Well, that's great. Do you know my nickname when I was a kid was Moo? <laughs> was it? Yeah. Why, why was your nickname Moo? Um, my grandmother used to call me Maddie Moo Moo. And um, Michelle, if you're listening out there, she still calls me Moo. Um, yeah, so my nickname just became Moo amongst many people. That is really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, why? <laughs> I'm just kind of trying to wrap my brain around why. No idea. It just Maddie Moo Moo Pumpkin Poo Poo. <laughs> Matty Moo Moo Pumpkin Poo Poo. That's what my grandma called me. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I'm going to regret that. So let's move on to Donut Money Donors. Okay. So first, uh, we had a little bit of an update. Okay. Remember last week there was one that was a little sketchy and we didn't want to really say the person's oh. name? Oh, yeah, because it was a fetish.com site. Right. Yeah. So she emailed me. Yeah. And she said, Mike and Matthew, I was the person that sent you donut money through my business PayPal. A dirty panties. I never intended for you to pro promote my site or address. <laughs> there was no option in the PayPal donation area to explain who I am or where I'm from. I'm so sorry, but it was funny, and I still feel I was shouted out. The $12 was to cover a dollar a month that we should be giving you guys. So go Aww, shit in your hat for your panties oh from Delilah. Delilah, I love you. <laughs> She said she was cry laughing <laughs> That's whilst listening. Um, but, but yeah, it was just like, okay, yeah. I'm glad that it was somebody who understood where we were coming from. Absolutely. We weren't, we weren't shouting you down. No, like I said, everyone, you know what? If, if, you, if you're making a business off that, go for it, girl. Any port in a storm. Absolutely. Did, did, we, did do we say where she's from? Uh, no, we didn't say where Delilah was from. I, we know what she does for business. I think I think she's from Hygiene, Colorado. <laughs> oh no, that's a real town, actually. She's from Hygiene, Colorado, and she sells dirty underwear. Ah, uh, Delilah! I want to meet Delilah. <laughs> I, I want to meet Delilah. I do too. Oh dear. But anyway, so that mystery has been solved. Thank I'm you. so grateful. <laughs> oh my goodness. Next up, we have somebody who has a, like a super Canadian name, Travis Doolin. Like Doolin is a very good Canadian name well, to me. Irish, isn't it? Well, yeah, but okay. Irish, you know, it's whatever. It's a beer, isn't it? Other, I, other Doolin's? Beer, other beers available. It, it could be. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Travis is from Terrace, British Columbia. Okay. Now, I know... A girl who lived across the street from me moved to Terrace years ago. Have I been through Terrace? Is it on the way? Like no, no, it's it's, no. it's north. You okay. you haven't been that far north, I don't think. I've I've been to way past a hundred mile house. Uh, uh maybe. Okay, but anyway, Terrace is is way way up there. Okay, and uh, the girl a girl who used to live across the street and became a school teacher later. Lived in Terrace, mm -hmm. uh, moved to Terrace from Bridgewater, and she also happened to be a Playboy. Really? Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not going to say her name because maybe no, she doesn't fine. want people to know that. Especially, uh, she's, she's a Playboy like centerfold sort of thing. Y yeah, she oh. was in Playboy at one point. Okay, yeah, that's cool. She used to babysit me. Awesome. Yeah. I anyway, think, I think Travis is a Playgirl model. Wow. Yeah. So what's what's Travis known for specifically, Matthew? Um, he likes to bake. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is in his little bio yeah, in, in Playgirl? I, yeah, I've never read one, so I'm assuming there's bios. There are. He likes to bake. Yeah. And surf. And surf. Yeah. Just yeah. Terrace, terrace. He hangs 11, and hey. you'll see why. When you... <laughs> Travis, I'll give you my number later. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't hang 10. He hangs, he hangs 11. 11. Oh, dear. Oh, dear is right. Anyway, that is thank it. You for, thank you for the donation. That's it for Donut Money and Patreon this week. Thank you so much. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, 
darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that is it for another episode of Dark Poutine. Thank you all for listening. And remember, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everybody. Bye. (laughs) Bye.